Welcome to episode five, the Violin Cello Podcast. Uh, this is Ned, and that's David. Yeah, thanks for spending some time with us. We've got a lot of interesting things to discuss. Uh, I think. And uh, yeah, so first of all, we've got an update from David because he just. Uh, I don't. I don't know. How would you describe the experience, David? Was it life changing? You're. Uh, so David just uh, played with one of the big five orchestras. Do you want to just say a little about that? You know, my life is always changing, so everything's life changing. You know, and uh, yeah, I, I I have the privilege of um, playing with a lot of groups, as many others do. And um, it's always interesting to learn lessons from um, how orchestras do things similarly, how orchestras do things differently, how things are uh, very much the same uh, across our profession, no matter what uh, level we're at, and how things can also be very different. And um, yeah, I, I, I think, um, Subbing, subbing with the Chicago Symphony last week was definitely life-changing. And, um, you know, I, I, I've played at that hall, Chicago Symphony Center, um, maybe about five, five, six times in my life uh, for uh, youth orchestra alumni concerts and um, outreach events and things like that. And every time I was always struck by how um, difficult it is to play in that hall, you really have to listen extremely carefully there that's crap and yeah it's crap it's, it's very hard to hear across the hall and very easy to hear yourself and uh, it can be quite scary but what i noticed last week is um not really that what i noticed was it, it was not very difficult to play in there uh with a group like that uh, just the because the amount of listening that goes on is just ridiculous and everybody's listening like crazy and so you know it's like uh and how would you describe that it's like uh you know a, a knife or you know if you have a a dull knife a gun maybe uh, <laughs> or, or you know you, you can you can think of a million different things but that let's go with a dull knife right you have to um it, it, it doesn't really do the work for you. But when you have a really sharp knife, it does the work for you. And um, you don't really have to do anything. And so all you have to do is just, you just move the knife where you want it to cut and, and it does it, no problem. And so it, it's kind of like that, where there, there's no difficulty at all um, in terms of trying to, to um, listen across and be together in, in a group like that. That's what I noticed in, in one of the highest level groups in, in history is, um, of course you have to listen, like you have to listen everywhere else, but the really special thing is how much everyone else is really listening. And um, so that, that makes things so much easier in a way. And so that was extremely eye-opening for me. Yeah, I didn't know you were an expert with with knives, you know, and you, you do some cooking from time to time or uh you know what? I, I like to cook a good skirt steak myself, actually. 
And, oh yeah. Uh, yeah you know, music is yeah. like cooking, right? You know, you have, you know, a, a baseline recipe for how to make macaroni and cheese, right? Everybody can think about how to make macaroni and cheese. Everybody can, every violinist maybe has an idea of how to play Mozart for or something, or Elgar cello concerto, whatever, that those notes on the page are just some kind of recipe. You know, with some composers more than others, right, they, they notate more and are more specific. But, you know, if you just play the notes, well, you know, it's not going to taste very good, that, that recipe, right? And so it's all about what kind of spices and things like that, and a little bit of this, a little bit of that. It's amazing how similar music is to cooking. And uh, I had a lesson with a great teacher uh, once upon a time in Kansas City who um, compared music to cooking. And, and I'll never forget that. Music really is like cooking. Mike? Yes. Yeah. Fabulous. Good man. <laughs> you mentioned like the with the experience with the CSO, like similarities and differences to other orchestras. And I'm just you clearly brought out the listening aspect. I'm just curious if there's what else you might have that's, I guess that's something where it sounds like it's the CSO is maybe better at than many other orchestras, uh, you know, certainly than lower tier orchestras, but are there some things that are similar as well with the experience? Well, I, you know, it, um, of course I was coming at it from a very different perspective. Um, as a substitute and feeling like you have a lot to prove or at least a lot not to mess up. <laughs> and uh, so probably a very different experience for me than, than somebody who actually plays in the orchestra regularly. Um, but from what I could see from my perspective, um, of course, as I mentioned, that the, the ability to just listen in such a nuanced, careful way um, I mean, the just the sound quality was unlike anything I had ever experienced. Um, I, mean, I mean, the brass, the, everything was just um, out of this world. Um, and, and no kidding, as we were doing the, the, the planets. Um, and so wow. just the, the physical, the not physical, but the actual sound that can be made um was just something I, I had never even discovered before um things that are similar uh what, what did i say earlier that um everybody's human and um you know i, I appreciated that quality too that um things were slightly different from day to day there was a little bit of variety it was not the case that like everything every day was all the same because God knows they could do it. They're the CSO. They can do whatever they want. And but the fact that things were a little bit different from day to day, just out of that pure artistry, um, I thought that was very refreshing. And I would imagine an orchestra that plays as much as they do um, just thrives off stuff like that, keeping things fresh. And um, so that was amazing, too. So do you have any call outs like anyone that made mistakes or that you want to just publicly or anyone uh, on the other side of things you kept mentioning the principal cellist that he had some incredible solos yeah and, i mean uh, i just i i i never heard a, a 
I, I don't even want to insult him by saying a cello sound. It's not about cello, but I, I've just never heard music making uh, on that kind of um, emotional, um, personal level before. Just the way that the, you know, I, I once heard the phrase, like, touch it the way you want it to feel in terms of your instrument. And just everything I heard, I just, it felt like it wasn't like somebody playing a cello. It, it was, it was just music being created. And, and the sound was just to die for. And so uh, it, it would be insulting to say really good cello playing. That's not what it is. That That's playing an instrument. That's not what was happening. What was happening was the musicianship, the music making and creating and that pure artistry. Um, that That's something I'll never forget. That was incredible. And, and I think it's so important that we as musicians make that distinction um, between instrument playing, oh, someone is a good violinist, and oh, someone is a good musician. And to me, those are two completely different things. You can have one without the other. And uh, of course, we always try to, we spend our life trying to have both. And um, I think it's super important to make that distinction. And so what I heard last week was obviously both, but um, just, just to notate that 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 artistry in music making was just out of this world. Yeah, so shifting, kind of wanted to talk a bit about managing performances. And part of this is because like in my professional life, I'm about to do like this little Asian tour with violin recitals. And the idea is to do like three of them, maybe Singapore, Malaysia, and Taiwan. And I did live in Singapore for a while, so that makes it easier. It's kind of hard to set these things up, you know, without management if you don't know anybody. But I happen to just know people in all these countries. So get out and meet people <laughs> so that you can perform in different countries, That's a, which is really cool. But I, I just, it's been a long time since, normally I play with string quartet. I have a string quartet. We perform. It's a very different thing playing solo. And I'm actually terrified because I've not done solo recitals in quite a while. And I'm practicing like never before. So it's a couple observations. One, the only way to really stay sharp as a player. If you're a string quartet player or an orchestra player, the only way to really stay sharp is to do some solo work. And opinion here. Like this recital, it's totally different. Like I'm doing virtuoso pieces and at least three of them. And this is different, totally different than, it, it is different than, than playing in groups. So that's that's one thought I had, and maybe I'll I'll just open up the floor if you have anything along those lines too. Uh, but then the other thought is that because of that, you know, I'm playing like I've never played, and I'm growing like I've never grown. 
even at my, you know, advancing age where, you know, physically I'm not like getting better, but my playing is improving a lot through these experiences, through forcing myself to do these. And yeah, there's a mix of like stress mixed in there, but it's also excitement ultimately that when I get there, I'm going to have a live audience in a, a different country, people from different cultures and different backgrounds. And we're just going to share this amazing music together. And I'm really, really pumped about it. So anyway, I'm, I'm really big on pushing yourself. You know, there's no one that really does anything for you in the arts. You kind of just have to make things happen. In my experience, so like you want to perform, you kind of just have to do it yourself, like everything. Selling tickets, whatever it is, sell the tickets, get the venue, get the pianist, get the advertising. Everything is you, basically, that I'm doing here. But there's something that's even so much more rewarding at the end when you put in all that kind of time and effort. It's like... Well, there's like this old story. Actually, this is probably a bad example, but I'm going to give it anyway. It's like this story of like a hen and she's like going to bake a cake. And there's all these steps to baking a cake. And so she like goes to the other animals and she's like, oh, do you want to help me gather that like plant the wheat? And they're like, no, I don't want to help you plant the wheat. And then she's like, oh, do you want to help me like gather the wheat? They're like, no, I don't want to help you gather the wheat. Then she's like, do you want to help like crush the wheat into flour? They're like, no, we don't want to help you do that. Do you want to like, you know, help me bake it or what? No, nobody wants. And then when she finally finishes the cake, everyone wants a slice, you know, and she does and she doesn't share because it's her cake and she did all the work. And basically the lesson is, is she did all this work. And she got to enjoy the fruit of her labor. It, like it's honest work. And, and so I'm already looking forward to how this is going to feel when I'm done. Even though I'm like working like a dog. And like actually David can tell you I've, I've been stressed out of my mind. I'm like, oh crap. I just planned these recitals in two months. And like full length recitals. Like I'm not like this is like over an hour of music. So anyway, that's my that's my spiel on managing your own performances. But do you have any thoughts? Well, it, it seems you have a lot of chamber music performances and then these upcoming solo performances. And um, I'm only slightly different with a lot of different orchestra performances coming up <clears throat> and a couple solo performances um, in mid to late March. Of course, one of them being a live recital on on a major classical music uh radio station so also pretty high stress and um so different things different kind of um music making to manage i think is what's really interesting right chair music orchestra solo they're all so different yet not so different and i think what we need to look for is how to make them not so different actually and um and so it's been interesting for me uh, to um, kind of explore um, 
you know, we can use um, like the music of Bach in these solo pieces to really explore our own artistry and to find our own artistry and develop it and and uh, and and remember it sometimes when we sometimes I feel like I'm I'm just playing a lot of notes in orchestra and I'm not really uh, being much of an artist about it and so it's important to keep rooted in those kind of pieces um, uh, you know sonatas and chamber music and solo pieces and things where we can really expand um, our artistry and uh, but then we turn around and take that and put that into all the other music that we play and to make sure that we don't become stale as orchestral musicians or as teachers. And so that's been interesting for me, take that kind of artistry and make sure I don't forget that I have it, take it and put it into the popper etude that I chose to work on this week or um, whatever orchestra program I'm, I'm working on. Uh, I'm looking ahead to the Dawson Negro Folk Symphony, which is a, one of my favorite pieces ever, um, written by William Dawson, American composer. And um, that piece is just wonderful and so brilliant and beautiful and, and haunting and, and all, all of those things. And, um, and so I want to make sure that I approach that piece not from the position of um, a stale orchestral musician, which sometimes I, I can be. And, um, you know, approaching that music from a, a really artistically genuine standpoint, I think it's so important um, to bring that music to life. And if you're a principal for inspiring your section and uh, I mean, there's limited things you can do in those kind of situations but at, at least having the capacity to bring to bring the artistry to those kind of pieces that you ideally would bring to your solo music and so that's kind of the beautiful thing to me is how similar we can make all these different kind of pieces um in, in terms of our artistry and so i, I i've been considering that recently um but yeah, I, I totally see what you're saying. It's difficult to manage all of these things. And um, I had a, that, well, this is related, but I had a teacher that had a, what they call the pepper system, where you, you have to learn a new difficult piece, you go through and you look at it and, and you see a difficult spot, you put a pepper there. And they're like, oh, that's a really difficult spot. You put two peppers and then a really difficult spot, really hard. You put three peppers. That's really hard. And, wow. and it seems primitive. It seems simple. But you, you use that and, and, you, and you practice the three pepper, practice a three pepper spot today. You know, you, you got to perform this in three months or whatever. And you kind of establish a hierarchy of the difficulties in these pieces. And... Um, so I'm kind of in that phase with my recitals uh, in the in, in March, kind of figuring out, well, what's difficult? What's a little bit less difficult? What do I need to address now to make sure that I'm in, in a couple of weeks before the performance? I'm not saying, wow, I wish that I would have managed this a little bit better since I knew about it six or seven months ahead of time. And so it's all about kind of um, prioritizing, of course, and um, and, uh, but, but at the same time, making sure that you never lose that sense of artistry. We can get so bogged down with all these um, difficult 
techniques and uh, things that we, we lose sight of the artistry and, and it's always important to make sure that that never happens. Yeah, it's kind of a mental thing with you have to like address three peppers, but like when you see three peppers, you really cannot have a big feeling of stress. It's just more like, okay, this is going to take more, maybe a little bit more time or something. But you never play well when you get, you start getting stressed for a passage. It just doesn't work. So like when I review things as a music critic, the number one judge for technique for me is how easy it sounds. It, like that's the number one thing. Like I, Michael Rabin, Lanet Kogan, whatever, these great violinists, it sounds really easy. And when you watch them, it looks easy. You're like, wow, anyone could do that. Like he's just simple, nothing, nothing to it. And uh, so they, they have that mentality, like the, they have this killer mentality that three peppers, they learn it. And then it's, it's just like go time, fearless, totally fearless. And I think that, so like I'm stressed now, but when it comes time to perform, I cannot let that into my actual playing, you know, when I'm going, like you just go for it. You know, if you play virtuoso pieces, there's some hard stuff and you might miss anyone can miss, you know, but you, you just have to, you have to go for it with everything. And I think that's what the audience responds to. But in, yeah, in terms of managing performance, like, whew, that prioritization is everything. It's like every day I'm playing these hard passages. I can't even, like every day, I know within the Asai exactly what's going to just nail me. And then two, and then you should get less and less stress the closer you get. And more, but you have to stress early. Like that's the number one thing to playing well. You have to be absolutely stressed early. If you're casual about it early, well, at least for me. Maybe it's because I'm not as gifted, so I have to put in more work. But you, if you're not stressed early, you're going to be stressed later. And, and you don't want that. Like you said, two weeks before, you're like, uh-oh. <laughs> it's not, you know, things are not there on the chest. I don't really know how to emulate the cello, but like it's not there. Yeah, um, yeah, for sure. And um, I was going to comment on something I, you said. I'm, I'm getting old. Um, but what was I going to say? I was going to talk about what you were saying. Um, something about being stressed. Yeah, I, I was going to mention the two things, thanks, that that I try to focus on as we I all understand on. stress as musicians. So that, that, <laughs> I, all I was just getting stressed out. <laughs> You're stressing me out. <laughs> you know, the two thing I, I've kind of boiled it down to two things to really keep in mind. Um, when I'm playing and I'm nervous. Um, well, when I'm playing, when I'm nervous, there's two things. And when I'm playing and I'm not nervous, there's still one thing that really bugs me. But um, those two things are, you know, of course, we don't want to play with a lot of tension, right? It's all about 
how to use tension and how to release it and when to release it and whatnot. I wouldn't need to get into that. But um, for me, it's all about when I get when I get nervous, right, to make sure that that doesn't translate into tension in my arms. And that, that to me is a killer that will ruin shifts, that will tighten your sound, that will mess with your bow hand and you'll get a stiff sound. Um, and so that's one thing. But even more importantly, what I've noticed, and I say more importantly because it doesn't just show up when I'm nervous, but it also, also shows up when I'm practicing. And that is to manage my breathing. And um, everybody, most people hold their breath, right? I think I'm the opposite. I'm one of the people that might breathe too much and erratically. And that does just as much, uh, if not more damage, I think, actually, to your playing. And um, and I've had that problem my whole life, and it's gotten a lot better. But I still, if I don't, it's like portado. If you're not always thinking about it, it it'll creep back in. And um, so that's something I've been thinking about at elevated levels lately. Um, when you, because you, earlier you said managing performances, but then later you said managing performance. So now we're talking about how to manage performing. And so that's one of the things for me is managing my breathing. And so even when I'm practicing, I notice I struggle with that. It, you know, in uh, in the opening of Einheldenleben or or something slightly difficult. You know, um, my breathing gets erratic, and then things start to get away from me. Then all of a sudden, it translates into roughness and string crossings or missed shifts, or or it can manifest in a million different bad ways. And so the biggest thing for me is um, people may not agree with this, I don't know, but figuring out to how to have the discipline to, in a difficult passage or any passage really, how to breathe as if I'm not even playing the cello. And so to imagine that you're just, as we sit here, we're just sitting here, how are we breathing right now? We breathe like, an, we just, it's unconscious, we just breathe. Now, how can we get really close to that while we're actually playing and more than that, executing a very difficult passage? And to me, that's really interesting. You know, of course, breathing breathing is, is related to the music and is related to how we play. But at the very least, I want to try to figure out how to breathe like a normal human being while I'm doing something difficult. And I think that's the key. And I get really pleased when I find myself playing something, some Strauss or something, and I find, wait a minute, uh, you know what? I'm breathing normally. So that to me is something really interesting I've been exploring. Yeah, I'm actually an Alexander Technique teacher. And I, I'm definitely a noisy breather too. Like on this podcast, I'm I'm like trying to, because I've listened to these obviously, and it's just my breath is like out of control, you know, all the time I'm sniffing, sniffing and snorting and I'm bet, uh, yeah, I'm not sure I've improved, but it's something that, you know, like the Alexander technique, it's not really about end gaining. It's not about, I have to achieve this. It's about noticing who you are. 
And then from there, you allow yourself to change. It's more of a natural, organic process as you build different habits. Like you can't, you can't do anything overnight, at least anything meaningful in terms of change overnight. So yeah, anyway, the Alexander technique is a breathing technique. So it's all about breath. And so, yeah, the more I find that in my practice room when I'm not stressed, the more it tends to gradually translate when I am under stress and feeling duress. I have more sort of inner confidence and more ability to cope with the stress physically. And that is, that's probably the biggest, that's probably the biggest thing in my life. That's that's probably why I'm better now than I was 10 years ago. Cause you certainly don't get a better body. Like your body gets worse. I mean, after, you know, I'm older than 25, right? So your body starts to get worse, but you can find easier and easier ways of playing. So that it doesn't really matter for like a long time. David mentioned earlier the there's some members in the CSO that are, you know, of age, seasoned, that have been there maybe even since the 80s. And they they're still amazing. And it's because they don't really, even if they're playing like a trombone or something, it it's so easy for them. Like their lungs aren't bigger than they were when they were 20. But, you know, in fact, you know, probably worse. Breathing capacity goes down, you know, anyway. Uh, but they maintain the level because they're masters at breathing. So anyway, that kind of struck a chord with me too. That I, although it's not true that my breathing's easy right now. So I do, I do have to disagree with you there because I'm on the podcast and this is a high stakes. You want this podcast to be legit. So it's a lot of pressure here to perform <laughs> for the audiences. But yeah. Well, that's good. Do you have any, any parting thoughts or any other last topics you have to? Well, that was, um, yeah, it, it was nice. What, what you said, I think that's, um, that that's a cornerstone of mastery of music making for any any instrument voice and in any instrument is is learning how to master breathing that's not just for instruments that breathe but string instruments too um because the breathing you know what do they say like the eye is the window into the soul or whatever you know, the breathing is the eye into everything. That's most definitely the eye into the beautiful sound that the right hand creates. And it's most definitely the way into the most beautiful vibrato you could possibly imagine. That doesn't happen with um, tense breathing or non-existent breathing and so um the the breathing is everything and, and um i mean the closer that we can get to breathing like normal while we do what we do and execute difficult passages the more that will serve us 
and uh, and I definitely noticed that in, in slow lyrical passages too, that if you can control that breathing, <laughs> the things you can do are just endless um, in terms of creating a beautiful sound, and uh, everything just goes hand in hand. And so that, that's a really important topic, something I didn't really understand uh, most of my life. And now that I'm just beginning to understand it and how the real work begins of trying to unite the two so that they work together. And um, that's another lifelong type thing, I think, at least for me. Yeah, I, when I, I, this could just be me, but the the louder and bigger things and like you think you want to like you said be more with the breath or more that's when you actually need to like calm the breath and everything like it i don't know it's almost the opposite of what you would think when you're playing really soft and trying to hide you know for me i it it doesn't I don't know. It doesn't matter quite as much, honestly, as but when I'm trying to get the most beautiful, bigger sounds I can, it, it really makes a difference. I'm not sure if that makes sense, but if I'm it sometimes it matters more than others. Like in but the places you instinctually start to know the places where you need to focus on your breathing. I think that happens with experience. Like my, the person I play with and one of the people I play with in string quartet, the other violinist, she, I've like never seen her have tension ever in her plan. I mean, more than is absolutely necessary. I, I've never seen it a single time. I've, it's amazing. To me, she's one of the greatest violinists ever because to achieve that kind of ease, everything is easy. And uh, it, it's because, and some I heard someone ask her once, "How are you so relaxed? Like, how is everything so easy?" And she's, and she basically just said, "Well, if anything, if if I notice anything, I shut it off <laughs> right away." So it it doesn't necessarily mean that there's not things that are getting tense, but it's that she locates them and shuts it down. She goes back to that breathing, probably. And everything shuts down instantly, you know, so you get faster at correcting. You never get rid of tension, but you get faster at correcting tension. Yeah, that that's um, very well spoken. And there's really something to that. And um, yeah, I, I, I'm envious of that kind of playing. I think that uh, I subconsciously thought uh, as a child and, and for many years that, you know, my aggressive breathing went hand in hand with passion and musicality and those two things belong together. But then I learned, wait a minute, actually, you know what, some of the times it gets in the way of me trying to convey the musical message I want to convey. And sometimes it the breathing just makes it harder, even though I, even though my lungs are just doing their best, I just want to contribute to the, the passion, the raw passion.
Um, but, you know, it's kind of like a, a first finger that wants to micromanage the bow. Well, that leads to portato and things like that. So, you know, in music, a lot of these things are learning to let go, learning to let go of that difficult breathing, just breathe normally, learning to stop letting the index finger micromanage the bow and stop letting the, you know, the the hand of the the bow the bow hand letting that micromanage the way that the bow moves you know we don't need to have the bow the hand way down into the stick like this we think we have more control and in some ways we do but actually when we lift the fingers up we let the bow do what it's supposed to do and so while we think we have less control we're actually actually that's the way things are supposed to be and so it's funny how things are opposite in that way that we just have to learn to let go uh, whether that's how we hold the bow or how we breathe <laughs> yeah i very much when i was also young well i still am this way because it never really goes you never really change you just kind of adapt if that makes sense so like, I'm still the same person I was at 18 in a way. But yeah, I used to feel like it was a full body experience, like when I perform, but there's an there's an attitude there that's a little bit selfish, in a way, because like, I wanted to experience the music more. But it, if it becomes about you and you being passionate, and you, you forget that all that really matters is what they're hearing out there. And so you can you can lose folk like, the thing has to be the thing and the thing is the beautiful music like as or the music that should be played as you know that should be heard as best you can interpret it right so it, it's it's kind of like you just feel like it's just when you're younger it's just raw emotion like i'm just gonna feel it and it's just gonna come out but you realize that that's and and it kind of works but you realize that there's a better way to, there's better ways of doing things as you mature. So sometimes you can, you can allow the luxury of really feeling something, but not to the point where it messes up your breath and it's going to hurt you physically and you're going to lose your stamina or so there's a, there's a lot more to it than just you like feeling is a luxury and you only get a really feel when you're in the audience truly, because there's other things that got to be working up here other than just, pure enjoyment there's actually a you know did i say this on this podcast you know chaliapin the famous russian baritone maybe the most famous russian singer in history he's a legend his name is chaliapin and he wrote he wrote a book and uh you should check it out actually i think he he really wrote two books i think that are pretty but there's one book he wrote on performing and this great baritone, you know what his problem was when he was younger? The guy would, he thought it was all about feeling and he felt so much that like there were times when he like broke down crying on stage and he couldn't even perform. And, and so he said he had to learn to actually shut off some of that emotion, which is set like none of us want to do it. But it, it's not about us. It's about what's best for the music. So there's something there that's selfless. Like we don't always get to just 
feel this exaltation the entire, you know, we might get a couple moments, but you know, that's for everyone else to feel. And we have, we have to do our job. You know, there's a craft that we have to do the job. We can't just cry, you know? <laughs> so, <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, you know, it's an interesting as I, as I've gotten older, that that very thing has happened where, um, and it can happen to different people for different reasons, but I've definitely noticed that kind of an emotional decline. And so, whereas five years ago, I'd have to try and close the faucet a little bit. Now I open the faucet and it just starts, it just drips. And so you got to find other ways to, to get that stuff. And um, that's been really interesting to me. Yeah, for better or for worse. Like you know? yeah, the the passion does fade. It does. That's just part of getting older. But yeah. there's still a part of you. There's still some. You know, I think it has to be. I don't know. George Washington, one of the founding fathers, was like labor to keep alive the flame or something like that. The flame of liberty, like labor to keep it alive, and I think of that too. Like in other words, it doesn't just happen. It doesn't just happen that you stay free. Like you have to labor to keep the the love of freedom alive or else it'll it'll go it'll die and uh, i think that's similar to this kind of like as artists we have to kind of late we have to sort of remember the old days or remember that raw passion we have to kind of keep it alive intentionally or else we become pretty like you were saying in performance these guys have done it forever cso is playing how many performances, 100, 150, like so many performances every year, you know, and each one the audience needs to hear what they're supposed to hear. So you have to labor to, it doesn't, it doesn't just happen. Like to be a true artist, it, it's a conscious effort to, does that make sense? Keep whatever that flame is, whatever that flame is, that love for music, that first love of music, that passion, like why we went into music, many of us, at least why I went into music, because I just loved it. And you have to, that has to be kept alive. And you have to remember that even, even if you don't feel it anymore, you still have to remember it and, and go to that place, you know. So those are some good parting thoughts, I think. Yeah, very well said. You can have the last word. Uh, I can't, I can't top word. that. Yeah, I can't top that. I, I, everyone's on their own journeys, and uh, everyone's on different sides of the, um, I don't know the, I don't know what you would call it. Everyone is on a different journey. Some people are trying to tone their breathing down and their passion down, and some people are trying to tone their breathing up. You know, people hold their breath or, or people hold their tension or people don't have enough uh, emotions. And uh, everyone's on a different journey. And uh, that's what's special. You know, everyone has their strengths and weaknesses. Yep. Very good. Yeah. You got to notice yourself and my Alexander conclusion here, you got to notice yourself. And then how do you, re how do you react to that? 
oh, I, I notice there's tension here. I notice this is how my breathing's going. How do you react? What do you, what do you want different? But first you just have to know yourself, know what you're doing, pay attention, you know, be mindful when you practice and perform. Okay, very good. Well, thanks for tuning in to episode five. This has been an enlightening discourse. We really did like no preparation for this. So it's, it's probably a bad thing to admit, maybe. I don't know. But there's also an element too that I think it's important that it's raw and unfiltered, like we said before. Raw and unfiltered. Like sometimes you can like, things get pretty slick and then you stop sharing your real opinions, you know, because everything gets so slick. So we try not to do that on this podcast. This is, these are real opinions, the truth about the music world. Okay, well, subscribe, check us out, share us. Whatever people do out there on social, what do they do? Social media, those kind of things. And uh, we'll, we'll see you next episode.